one of the things that I observed this morning, hear it many times, is the, the cooing and the whimpering of the little babies in the congregation. It's sweet, isn't it? Very thankful uh, for all of the families who gather with us. I know it's an effort uh, to do so. And uh, I'm just reminded this morning as a, a theme that we're going to see in Isaiah 11. I hope you'll turn there with me. In Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10 this morning, a theme that we'll see there is longing. It's really a theme of our Advent series, waiting for our King, a, a theme of, of, of longing, of expectation. I know that many of the families who are with us this morning are just longing for a good night's sleep. And that's the way that longing works. It's a longing for something that is good that you do not have. And the question is, is it something that we can expect to arrive ever anytime soon? Right? It's a persistent theme at Christmas. Longing is. I heard the song this week. You may be familiar with it. I'll be home for Christmas. Right? I'm reminded of the fact that this song is not so much an announcement of travel plans. I'll be home for Christmas, planning to arrive sometime on December 24th at 8 o'clock. You can pick me up at Orlando Airport, right? It's more of a statement of a wish and a dream. It's a heartfelt emotions of a World War II soldier longing to return by Christmas Day. I'll be home for Christmas, right? If only in my dreams... I'm aware of the fact that longing very often has a very mel melancholy note, especially longing that is around Christmas. And I wonder if we should lean into that during this season, that we ought to let that sort of longing, uh, a wishing for people that we know here, that, that we wish were closer to us right now and in this Christmas season. There are friends and family who we long to be with us, but they're no longer with us anymore. We, I just saw on my wife's uncle's Facebook post this week that they decorated the furniture store window in Sheboygan Falls, Wisconsin, in that beautiful downtown area, and they decorated the window with all blue ornaments. And on the window, they put the words, it will be a blue Christmas without you, in the memory of the wife's mother who passed away just this past year. It's a season of longing, a, a, a melancholy, something is missing and we wonder, will it ever be replaced? I wonder if one of the things that we should do this year is allow that longing to instruct us at Advent. Now, I know Jesus was not born on December 25th. I'm sorry if that's news this morning for you, that the happy birthday thing that you sing on December 25th might not be on the actual day. I, I know that he wasn't probably even born in this season of the year. But I also know that here in the Northern Hemisphere in December, these long winter nights, the peaceful night up north where snow mutes all the sounds and all that you can hear is your own heartbeat and the sound of the snow being crushed under your feet. I know that we find ourselves in a long winter night of longing and waiting. This is where we are today. And this season that we are in can instruct us. We find ourselves feeling what C.S. Lewis so helpfully in Chronicles of Narnia called always winter, but never Christmas. That's where we are 
In our passage this morning, we have a longing for home, a longing for a king, for righteousness and for peace that that has as its ultimate end, verse 10, his resting place shall be glorious. A longing for rest, a longing for home. With Isaiah 11 this morning, we make an effort to remember the often forgotten crown of Jesus Christ, our King. And so this morning, we're going to look at this passage in Isaiah 11, and we're going to consider these three layers of longing as we walk through the passage together. Let's begin together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace of life and for a life in which we experience seasons and change. And in each of its seasons, there's, there's a time, there's a feeling, there's an experience, there's loss and there's hope. And this season, those two things meet. Lord, I pray that you would instruct our hearts by your word to show us what it is that we, we've lost something. There, there's a perfection, there's an excellence, there's a paradise that we know is supposed to actually be this created universe that you have made, and we've lost it. We long for its restoration. And we hope in you and the promises that can be found in you and the work that you have done and that you have promised to bring to its completion in the work and coming of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would instruct us, you would show us how to rightly feel, how to rightly think, how to rightly long, how to rightly expect, and therefore how to rightly live and worship in this season in which you have us. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for all these things, and we trust your spirit to work in this word to instruct our hearts. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. First longing that I want to consider this morning, we're going to find it in verses 1 and 2 of the passage, is a longing for a king. Now, I've been listening to a podcast, very helpful, um, very instructive for me, called This Cultural Moment. And as I've been listening to that podcast in it, they suggest that much of the hopes and promises that were once the domain of religion in society and culture in history that many of these hopes and promises have been moved from the domain of religion and spirituality to the domain of politics. I find that interesting, that while there's little actual confidence in political leaders and little actual confidence in the political process, that there is still an increasing effort to obtain what one deems to be good for society and the self by political means, how much effort, how much newsprint, how many blog articles, how many tweets are being made that really are, are indicative of an effort to change a political process, some policy in government to fix our broken condition. We're putting our hopes and our dreams in a different place these days. I think that that reveals something that's fundamentally true about humanity, that we believe and we know that we have a need as a people to be governed. We have a need to be governed. 
And we believe that a right rule will result in a right world. And that is so very close to the truth. And that's what we read this morning. A shoot. A shoot will rise up from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now consider some of the context. Judah and all of Israel are under the judgment of God. They've wandered away from him. And under his judgment, they have been cut down like a tree all the way down to the stump. The land is taken away and the temple is destroyed. And what will come of Israel now? Now they're just a stump and they'll dry up. The wind will blow dirt over the stump and it will be replaced with just barren land. Surely, Judah... The line of Jesse, King David, with all of its promises, surely it's over, right? Is there really no enduring dynasty for the people of King David and his father Jesse? Is there no forever king? What of God's promise to David that he would forever have a son on the throne? What of that promise? Now we're, we're down to a stump in breaks Isaiah 11. Now what's interesting is the New Testament picks up on Isaiah 11 all over the place. These things are considered over and over again. Speaking of King David, you see in Acts chapter 13, verses 20, verse 23, Acts 13, 23. We'll look at it in just a few months here as we are back in our Acts series in the new year. Speaking of King David, it says, Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. What we discover is God's plan for the stump was not that it would be covered over, not that it would pass away, but out from it would come another king in that line. In our passage, we find David cut down right to the stump, but we have a promise of a shoot, a branch of King David's father, Jesse, that would spring up from the stump. And we're being told that there is a king coming in the line of David. There is a king coming. There's there's good news for a people who had a promise of a forever king. Jesus picks up on the same image. He picks it up in Revelation 22, verse 16. For those of you who are familiar, that is the end of the story. And Jesus picks up this verse, and here's what he says, Revelation twenty-two sixteen. 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. Oh, what does Jesus say? What did he send his angel, his messenger? What is the word that he has declared? His word is, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Isaiah 11.1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump. So the stump's the original thing, right? And then you have the shoot that is Jesus, the Messiah, who would come. And Jesus says, oh, yeah, 
That's me. I am a descendant of King David. I am in that line. I am the promised forever king. I am the Messiah. But I'm also the root. Jesse came from me. He's not just a descendant of a man. He is the Lord God. Now that's good news if you watched any of the kings who were the descendants of Jesse, David, Solomon, and on. They were just men. And some of them did some good things. David expands the territory. Solomon is very wise. He builds the temple. Some did wicked things and others walked in a season of restoration and repentance. They did many things, but they were just men. And their governments passed away all the way down to the stump. But there is one who came before the stump. There is a root that stands underneath and he is the Lord God. And he would come in the season that we celebrate, the season of Advent. He would come at Christmas and be born a God-man. And as we will see, he is able where all who came before him were destined to become just a stump. So let's take a moment. Let's look at verses, verse 2 where we see the character of the king. The spirit of the king who would come from Jesse. Verse 2 says, The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. The shoot from the stump of Jesse is filled with the spirit. And a particular kind of spirit. The the Holy Spirit of God is in him and he's filled with all the attributes of God himself. What a glorious set of attributes for a king. Look at him. Let's just step aside and consider what is a designer king? Like if you were to imagine the perfect king, what would he be like? Friends, I'll tell you, he would have wisdom and understanding. He would have counsel and might. He would have knowledge and a fear of the Lord. He would know the Lord God, who He is, and He is great. A glorious pair found in the middle of that. Counsel and might. It's sort of this political cycle that we are in, where, where people declare great platforms, right? They offer what they find to be sound counsel, and they make great promises out of their platform. And they gather great constituencies around that platform, and then they get into their various offices, and they can't do a thing. And it turns out the policies were great, but the people are still busted, Right? Counsel. He has counsel. He is a, a great platform that flows from his wisdom and understanding. He has a great policy that he will enact when he is king. And he has might and knowledge and a fear of the Lord. It will happen. He has the might of God himself. He doesn't just have a platform. He is able to govern according to his own wisdom an understanding and knowledge in the fear of the Lord. The Lord has wisdom and understanding and perspective to know what to do, and He has the might to see it come to pass. We call that the gospel. 
That, that is the good news. And we will see it worked out in the work of the gospel, the work of Jesus Christ in his life, death, resurrection, and in the promise of his return. Now it's as we consider the righteous rule of this king that we'll come to understand just how important this last little phrase is. This phrase, the fear of the Lord, how important that is to his rule. Just want to take one moment and point out from this passage that God doesn't forget his promises. He promised that there would be a king forever on the throne who is a son of David. God did not forget the promise of paradise in the garden in the beginning and the promises that he made there just after the fall of man. The Lord knows that the universe is only right and the universe is only at peace when he dwells among his people and when he dwells there as their king. He hasn't forgotten these things. We were not made to make of this world a world on our own. We were made to dwell with and under the rightful rule of a king. His name is Jesus, and he rules with wisdom and understanding and counsel and might. Now, if this is true, and as, as we as believers in Jesus Christ, we had, our longing and our confession is we need a king, and we know his name, and we long for not only the coming of a savior, but one who would rightly order the universe. That's the nature of our Advent longing. Now let's continue. We consider the first layer of longing for a king in verses 3 through 5. We now consider the longing for righteousness. Verse 3 says this, And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. I, I think that's actually a summary of the verse that came just before it. It's a summary of his character. His rule can be summarized in this way. No thing that he does is not shaped by a fear of doing anything that would displease the Lord God. Or to put it more positively, everything that he does is shaped by what pleases God. Everything that he does. His ways, therefore are good and upright. They are congruent. They are in line with all that is good and true and that's found in God Himself. The, the rule of this righteous king who springs up from the stump of Jesse, this Messiah that would come, would rule as God Himself rules. A question for you, do you long for such a king? Do, do you long for that? Do you long that God would reign on earth as it is in heaven? Do you desire it with a single-minded pursuit? Do you, divided and, and undiv do, you, do you long for an undivided, holy rule that's not wavering? You're, you, you don't enter his throne room and wonder, I wonder what is going to be on his mind today. No, he's revealed himself. He's revealed his righteous character. He's revealed the goodness and the righteousness of his way. Do you long for that kind of rule? Now we're told a little bit more information about the rule. In verse 3 it says, He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. That's super important for a judge and for a king. He, he doesn't look at the accused. 
And he doesn't, when he's making his judgments, look at the accuser. Their appearance, their status, their occupation, their ethnicity, their nationality, the color of their skin, their prominence, their education, their eloquence, their folly and their past. They don't matter. What matters to him is the truth alone, the reality of the matter. Those other factors, they don't influence him. They have no leverage upon him. More importantly, none of those things intimidate him. The influence and the intimidation that often enters into a courtroom of justice on our earth is why it's so very often unjust. The singular influence for this judge is a fear of the Lord, a knowledge of His way and a knowledge of reality and truth. He has one fear. He fears nothing but only that He would do what is right before God Himself. He sees only the Lord. When He makes His judgment, He sees the the. the the face of the divine. He hears only the words of righteousness. His delight is the fear of the Lord. Now that's a good judge. I think Jesus himself demonstrates this when he was tempted by the devil in the desert. What is on Jesus' lips? What is on his mind? What is before his eyes as as he's being tempted by the evil one? Three times. His only reply to Satan in the midst of temptation to be distracted by other lesser things three times, his reply was the word of God. That was what was in his ears. That was the face of God was what was before his face. And he judged rightly. The word of God, the fear of the Lord is always before his eyes. The word of God and the fear of the Lord is always in his ears. Friends, that's a good judge. You long for such a judge. We're told as we continue in verse 4, with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. If the cause of the poor and the cause of the meek is upright, it will stand. Period. There's no extra mitigating factors for this king. Remember, he has understanding and he has wisdom and he has might to see it come to pass. That which is upright, even for the poor and the meek that are often seen with different eyes and heard with different ears in our age. Under the reign of that king, their cause will stand. This isn't so for the judges and the rulers of this world. The psalmist often laments, how long will the wicked and the haughty prosper? How long will they get off? How long will the wicked and the haughty, how long will will their cause stand? The psalmist laments. The prophets often cry out against the unjust trampling of the poor by those who are in power. And then we see Jesus. The shoot from the stump of Jesse when he arrives. What does he do? We see him dining with both the sinner and the Pharisee. Those who are out of power, destitute and lost in this world, and the outcasts in society. And those who were in power, but the Lord knew were destitute and lost and out of power in his kingdom. He dined with both. We see him healing both the leper and the centurion's servant. We see the Lord God only 
Before Jesus, only the Lord God is before His eyes. Only what is true, righteous, what is of equity. He judges for the meek who dwell in faith under His righteous rule. And then we're told this phrase. And, in verse 4, the second half, He shall strike the earth with the rod of His mouth And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. If if your delight is the fear of the Lord as well, then in this kingdom, under this king, is a safe place to dwell. But we're told if your delight is in wickedness, you will be found out. Friends, no matter how that resonates with your heart right now, that's a good king. That is an upright, just, and righteous king. Now, for us this morning, I think there is a diagnostic test. You say as you're resonating along here, you're longing for the coming of this king. Perhaps you have experienced injustice yourself. Perhaps you have been one who has been judged with the eyes rather than with what is right and good and true. And you're longing for this, right? And you say, that's good news. That's what I hope for. I I want a king like that. I want a judge like that. There is a way that we can test whether or not that is actually true of our hearts. And we can test it this way. Here's the diagnostic. If you want to judge, if you want to judge like that, then you yourself will judge like that. What do you want? What is your longing? What is your desire? If you want a judge like that, you will judge like that. If your delight is in the righteous judge, then you will delight in what? Righteousness, right? There's a way that we can test our longing. Jesus picks up this same theme in John chapter 7, verse 24. Jesus says this, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Jesus picks up Isaiah 11, and he doesn't apply it to himself. He's already, the fear of the Lord is already before his eyes. He already has the words of the Lord in his ears. And he says, listen, It's already applied to me. The question is, is it applied to those who follow after me? Now, there's a caution in the midst of that diagnostic tool for us. Our righteousness is not the means by which we enter into the kingdom. As we judge our righteousness, we discover whether we want to be in the kingdom at all. We discover whether or not we actually love the righteous way, or if we're just trying to to leverage whatever we think we may have on God by some small righteous act to gain a position of power for ourselves in the kingdom. Jesus seems to think that Isaiah 11 doesn't just describe the king, it describes his people as a people who long for the ways of God. So for us this morning... May Advent be not only a longing for the coming of the King, because listen, the King is coming, and He's going to be like this. 
And He's going to judge in righteousnesses like this. You are right to long for it because your longing will be fulfilled. But the question is, do you actually long for it? Do you actually long for the ways of the King who is coming? He seems to think that righteousness describes the people of God in their longing. Friends, this morning, we'll grow in our confidence that we belong to the King as we find greater delight in the fear of the Lord. As the Lord is before our eyes and as the Lord fills our ears, we'll grow in confidence for the day in which the King returns. Do you not only long to see the righteousness of the King deliver uh, you from the evil of this world, but do you long for the righteousness of the King to be formed in your own heart? Are you looking for rescue not only from the oppression that is in the world, but for, from the evil, the waywardness that is in you? And so our prayer becomes, Lord, rule over my life, rule over my heart in such a way that your way actually becomes my way. Do you see, that's a new longing. It's, it's a longing for the coming of the king not only to reign over, it's a longing for the, the coming of the king to reign in the people. There's a longing for the king to come. There's a longing for His righteousness to reign. And there is a longing for peace. Verses 6 through 9. Look at it. The wolf shall lie down, will, shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. You've got a calf and a lion and a fatted calf together. You have a child leading this menagerie, right? You have a cow and a bear grazing together. The young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. You have a nursing child playing in a hole of a cobra, reaching his hand into the adder's den? This is a zoo, right? It's a zoo without cages. That's not where I live. That's not Brevard County Zoo, just right down the road. That's not the universe that I live in, and it's not the reign and the order of things that I know. Imagine a zoo without cages and a feeding time that takes place without one animal afraid of the animal that's next to it. Imagine. Now there's a lot to this passage that if you look at it intently, and I would invite you to, invite you to look at this more intently in coming days and weeks as we are in this Advent season, listen to other sermons on this passage, perhaps read some books on this passage the same sort of language is used in Isaiah 65. It's a good footnote on this passage to see the way that Isaiah 11 is picked up elsewhere, even in Isaiah. But it raises a couple questions. Is this passage about a new heavens and a new earth? Is it about a period of peace brought by the Messiah on the earth before the Lord remakes all things? Is there a, a metaphorical way in which the Lord is already bringing these things to pass? Yes, Brevard County Zoo still needs cages, but the Lord is unleashing His peace in the hearts of His people in some fashion. Is, I have to be honest and say at this point, I, I, I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I still have a lot more reading and a lot more listening to do. I have a great need for the fear of the Lord be, before my eyes in this passage, but I can say two things with absolute confidence from Isaiah 11. The first thing that I can say is I wish it were true. I wish 
That's the world that I lived in. I wish I could walk through that zoo. More than that, I, I wish it was my neighborhood. I wish it was where I lived. I find it compelling. I find it beautiful what I read there. As a father, I wish I could send my children out of my home without fear of cobras and the adder's den. I wish for the peace of a king and his kingdom was already come. I wish it was here today. One thing that I'm sure of is I'm sure of my longing. And, and I'm sure that, that as I read the Scriptures, the longing increases. Now, on the other hand, as I am distant from the Word of God, the longing decreases, and I long for far lesser things. But as I read the Word and as I spend time in Isaiah this Advent season, the longing is increasing. But I'm sure of a second thing. The peace that this passage describes will surely come. It's coming, it seems to be coming in waves. It seems to be coming in slowly, but surely. It is coming. It may come on the other side of much tragedy, much persecution, much wickedness in the hearts of men and their perverse governments. This may be so, but the righteous king is coming, and in the end, he will bring total peace, even a totality of peace that looks like this passage everywhere in the new heavens and new earth, across all of creation, all the way down to the beasts being at peace, all the way down to the safety of the most vulnerable among us. The peace is coming. One of the things that we do at Crosspoint as the lead pastors, we get together every Wednesday, we read the Scripture, and then we pray our way through it before we spend some time discussing our sermon outlines and things that we are preparing and reading in other places. As we were praying through it, I had to stop and write down something Miguel Medina said at Crosspoint Espanol. He wrote, I am, or he said in his prayer, I am both provoked and encouraged hearing that you will judge with equity. I am both provoked and encouraged. I like to think that I long for the righteous king and judge to come. I, I like to think that when the judge comes, I'll be happy because he will have brought peace. But the fact is, if he's truly righteous, he also comes in judgment on the ways that I have destroyed the peace. You see, we don't live in a land that is fraught with fear and loss because of something somebody else has done alone. We live in a world that is not at peace because we live in it, because I live in it, and I am provoked. The king's going to come, and he's going to deal with me. I realize I'm vulnerable, not only to the unrighteousness of this world, I, I'm vulnerable to be judged for my own participation in rebellion. Thank the Lord that Jesus is both the just and the justifier. Thank the Lord that for all who cling to Him in faith, He's already dealt with the judgment for those He has redeemed. And for that reason, as Miguel continued to pray, he prayed this, We will 
We who are provoked and encouraged by news of the coming of the King, we will rejoice in the work of your Son and in the truth of your judgments. We will rejoice in the work of your Son because we'll see you coming in judgment and we'll say, He's coming for me, except for Jesus has already come for us in our place, died our death so that we might be raised to newness of life. Do you long for the coming of the King? Do you, do you feel that angst, that being provoked, and the encouragement that we have in Christ? There is a psalm that's precious to me. I, I find its opposites that are shared in it to be particularly helpful for the passage that we're in this morning. Psalm 85. I'll read for you Psalm 85, verses 8 through 13. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. Now, that's a great phrase to begin with for a people who have in our ears only the word of God. Our word is, let me hear it. Let me hear what the Lord, the God, will speak. For He will speak peace to His people, to His saints. But let them not turn back to folly. You hear the warning, right? Let them not turn back to folly. Surely His salvation is near to those who, what? Do you hear Isaiah 11 here? To those who fear Him. Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him, that glory may dwell in the land. Now we're going to look at this in just a moment, but that's how our passage ends. His resting place shall be glorious. And what does the psalmist say? That glory may dwell in our land. What is glory? It's the presence of the Lord God. That's what we're longing for. We're longing that the Lord God would dwell among His people again. Now here's why this passage came to mind. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. And then this, righteousness and peace kiss each other. You know where they kiss each other? Where righteousness, the righteous judgment of the Lord God and, and peace meet. They meet in Isaiah 11. They meet in the promise of the coming of the Messiah. They meet in the fulfillment which is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the place where righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before Him and make His footsteps away. What way? A way that we can walk in. Because we have found His way of righteousness and peace to be compelling. Something that our hearts long for. God, go before us that we might walk in Your way, the people say. And then the passage ends with this, verse 10. In that day, in that day, the root of Jesse, the Messiah who is coming, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Jesus in His incarnation, in His gospel work, His cradle, His cross, His resurrection, Jesus has become a signal. He's become a standard. He's become a flag waving that all would gather to Him. Look at the passage again. 
who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire. As we begin our study in Acts this fall, we see that that it's this banner, this gospel, the work of the Messiah, Jesus. It's that banner that the church is waving and the nations are gathering to it. The church has been sent out to gather the nations, the peoples, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our standard. That's our flag. We raise it every Sunday. It's why we are a gospel-centered church, and we have to be. We have no other banner to wave. As we wave that banner that the people, us, and the nations are gathered to that gospel banner. The king has come and he's declared righteousness and peace for all rebels who will lay down their arms and gather to his standard, who will bow the knee to his righteous rule and long for the peace of his coming. And what's the promise? What's the promise of that standard? What is the promise of the land where that standard is raised? The promise is peace. The promise is glory. We will gather in the light of His glory. Ray Ortland, so helpful, his commentary on this passage. He writes this, The kingdom is established. The flag is flying. It will never fall, but it is opposed. Our part is to stay true. This is where we live. The kingdom is coming, although the banner's up. The king is on the move, and we gather to his banner, and there will be opposition until the day that he puts his flag down, and he says, here I stand, and here is my glory. He gathers all the peoples to himself. I'm reminded of the author of the Star-Spangled Banner looking from a ship outside of Baltimore during the British bombardment. And with him... We say, as long as the signal stands, as long as the flag waves will rally to its glory, for He is our resting place. Friends, it's not a flag. And even to say that we are gospel-centered can become a misnomer, as if we were centered on words. Oh, but the gospel is found in a person and His work. We're gathered to His glory. I think the benediction that I I offer over the congregation every week is appropriate. This is the banner. The Lord bless you and keep you, right? The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. What good news that that's possible. That when the king comes and he's going to judge rightly and he's going to see the reality of our hearts, that when we see his face, it could be grace to you. That's good news. And the Lord lift up the light of his countenance. Glory. The glory of his countenance upon you. And what comes? What comes when the light of the glory of God shines most brightly? Peace. Peace. Friends, it's a statement as we offer that benediction. The word benediction just means well-saying. As we offer that well-saying over the people of God every week, it's a promise from God to be with His people. This is what He said He would do. But it's also a longing, an expectation, a call to the people. Is that what you desire as you go? 
or are you done with that before the face of God stuff? Is it your desire as we go from the people gathered that we go as a people who know His presence, know His promise, that we go as a people of expectation? This is our hope. This is our refuge. This is His kingdom and His glory. Heavenly Father, our hope and expectation must be You. It must be that the King would come, that You would reign in righteousness and peace. But it's good. It's not good news unless there is a gospel work by the King. Lord, only You, we confess, can be both just and justifier. Lord, if You are King alone, we are lost and condemned in our sin and rebellion against You and toward one another. Lord, but if You are Savior, if You are Redeemer, if You are the one who has come in Your first advent to redeem a people to Yourself, that Your second advent would be good news to all who place their faith in You and whose sins are forgiven. Lord, there is good news. There is gospel. There is the expectation to dwell in glory. Lord God, we thank You for these things. I pray that You would hold them before our eyes and that You would grow in us as we spend time in Isaiah in these weeks an expectation, a a realistic, prophetic, future-looking, present-changing expectation for the King to come. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your good name, in the name of our King and our standard. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.